Thanks, Lou, for reading our second half of our passage. We're in 1 Samuel 12, um, and we're talking this morning about a funky farewell. This is, uh, this is Samuel's going away message, if you will. He's still going to be around, um, but he is departing the scene for all intents and purposes. Um, I have a little bit of experience with farewells. I've moved 19 times in my life, so I know what it is to say farewell uh, to folks. Most of those um, moves were when I was a kid. Um, we were in the military, and um, at least over half of them were when I was, I was younger and I was a child. So uh, they were farewells in the more traditional sense, right? Uh, good friends parting ways, and uh, I remember being in the, the back of the van, uh, the, the Ford 250, I think is what we had, um, going down the road, looking out the back window as my friends and their homes disappeared into the, uh, into the um, background. Um, but then there are those farewells that are a little more awkward. Um, you, you can probably remember some of those farewells. I, I don't have actual memories of Nixon boarding the helicopter, but I've seen pictures of that farewell. Um, a little bit of awkwardness, right? Uh, you, you may have experienced some of these. So in, in the life of a pastor, um, a pastor is probably going to experience an awkward farewell. And here's the way those happen. Um, either the pastor or the congregation uh, lose uh, some of that, you know, um, the, the twinkle in the eye for each other. And, um, and it's just, the Lord's calling him elsewhere, okay? You get my drift? And, um, and so he leaves, but before he leaves, everybody has a big get-together. But on one end of that, either the pastor or the congregation's not feeling so hot about the relationship anymore. And yet we kind of have to get up and say all sorts of nice things about each other, all the while knowing that we're parting ways because it's just not working anymore, all right? And you have a funky farewell. This passage is a little wonky, okay? Um, Samuel is exiting the scene, and as he exits the scene, he has a few things that he wants to say. The interesting thing about the passage is it's not quite as wonky as it could be. Because essentially Samuel is leaving because there's been a rejection of him and his leadership by the people of Israel. They've essentially asked for something else. We want a different leader. And so in doing that, they've rejected Samuel, and that hurts. Have you ever been rejected? It's painful. And it could be really painful in Samuel's life, and yet he doesn't choose to really strike at them. Instead, he calls their attention Back to God. And he does it in three ways. The first thing is he highlights the idols of their heart. The second thing that he does is he directs them to fear God. And the third thing is he exhorts them to cling to God's grace. And so instead of striking out at these people who have essentially rejected him, Samuel chooses to call their attention to who God is. And he does it in these three ways. Let's look at the first one. 
the first thing that he does is he highlights the idols of their heart. So you'll notice at the beginning, right? So those probably really the first five to six verses. Notice how notice how Samuel sets this up. He he essentially says to he says to all Israel, I've listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. So I've done exactly what you've asked. I've given you the king that you wanted. And um, and then he says, now that you've got this king, let's talk about me, okay? And uh, let's talk about my leadership. Now, this is a little bit of that wonkiness because what Samuel is essentially saying is, haven't I been a good leader for you? And they're forced to say, yeah. Now, granted, the standard wasn't necessarily high. They had had some really sorry leaders, okay? So what does Samuel say? He says, okay, did I take any of your oxes? No. Did I take any of your donkeys? No. Did I steal any of your sheep? No, you didn't do any of those things. Was I always honest with you? Yes, you were always honest with us. Um, Did I ever, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod, look the other way while I took a little money under the table? No, Samuel, you never did that. You, you, you uh, You were completely above board. Samuel was a good and godly leader for them. And he essentially tells them, he says, look, if I've done any of these things, I will make it right. Verse 4, they said to him, you have not cheated or oppressed us. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. And then Samuel moves and he says, look, the Lord is witness against you and also is anointed as witness this day. that You have not found anything in my hand. Essentially what he's saying is, I have been completely above board with you. I have been the leader that I said I would be and should have been, and you are born witness. And they said, he is witness. And then Samuel moves to highlight what exactly they've done. And here's how he's done it. So when I was a kid, when I was a kid, my grandmother would, um, she did two things. The first is she wrote regularly. Um, a lot of letters. If you ever come into my office, uh, she and my grandfather wrote me quite regularly. And, um, and so if you, if you go into my office, uh, on the right hand side, right there on, on the wall is a picture of me and my grandfather, um, in a frame. And there's a letter that he had written me, um, about choosing wisely my calling in life. My grandfather was a road grader, okay, um, in Missouri. He graded roads. That's primarily what he did, and he was good at it. If you owned property out in the county, you wanted Noah Van Meter to grate your road because if he did it, it wouldn't be like this. Anybody ever driven on those roads? And um, so, uh, but I have this letter. My grandmother wrote me as well a lot, and she always did two things in her letters. One is she would always tape dimes on the inside. Anybody ever do this? So my grandmother would send me about a buck, and they would be in dimes, and she would tape them into the letter, and I love that. Um, and then the second thing that she did is she always cut out from the comic page. She cut out that one comic. It's not really a comic. It's a little exercise, and it has two pictures, um, one above the other, and the two pictures are nearly identical, except there's ten things in, this, in the pictures that are different, and you've got to find those. 
Um, and I guess the idea there was that it taught you kind of attention to detail sort of a thing. But she would always send those. So she would cut those out, and there would be several of them that she would then put into the letter, and she would mail them to me. And, and I loved doing those, I remember. Samuel's doing a little bit of that right here. He's saying, look, there, there are several episodes in your life, and if you look at these episodes, they all very similar, but one is not like the other. Which one is it? And so let's look at the episodes. The first one, he actually just teases us in verse 6. He says to the people, It's the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your ancestors up out of Egypt. Okay, so he's calling to mind what did God do for you. He, he gave you Moses and Aaron, and Moses and Aaron rescued you from Egypt. And then he moves in to the second part, verse 8. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your ancestors out of Egypt, and he settled them in this place. Verse 9, but they forgot the Lord, so he sold them into the hand of Sisera. And this, is the, this is the period of the book of Judges. The commander of the armor of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines, the king of Moab, who fought against them, and they, what? Verse 10, they cried out to the Lord. And they said, we have sinned and we have forsaken the Lord and we serve Baals and the Asherah. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. Verse 11, the Lord sent Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you so that you lived in safety. Okay, so we have a couple of instances. And the instances are the people were oppressed, bad things were happening, so they cried out to the Lord. And what did the Lord do? He rescued them. He gave them leaders who would rescue them. But he was the one doing it. So they had an issue. They cried out to the Lord. The Lord responded, and he met the issue in their lives. Now, look at verse 12. Here's the one that's not like the others. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us. And then Samuel adds the twist. Even though the Lord your God was your king. So here's what happened. There's a history. The people of God at this point have a history. And the history is they are in dark places. They cried out to God. God rescued them. Until the Ammonites. Until Nahash came along. And when Nahash came along and he moved against them, right? So he got his army, he arrayed his army against them, and he began to move against them. And when that happened, what did they do? Did they cry out to the Lord? No. They went to Samuel and they said, give us a king. We want a king. We want a king who's going to ride out into battle, who's going to lead us into victory. We want a king who's going to rescue us from Nahash and the Ammonites. Because everybody else has a king. And we want to be just like everybody else. And in that moment, they forgot that the Lord their God was their king. He was the one who had rescued them every prior time. And they didn't turn to him. Somehow there was this disconnect in their mind. And they'd gotten it into their minds that if they had a king like the other nations, they would have to go through this rigmarole all the time. 
And Samuel twists it. And he tells us the real issue wasn't that they wanted a king. It's that they forgot that the Lord, their God, was their king. They forgot who it was that rescued them. They forgot who it was that even stood behind the king. So even if they had a king that was given to this to them at this point, they weren't going to recognize that that king had a greater king who stood behind them. That's why the psalmist says he's the great king above all kings or gods. He stands behind them. And so that was the situation. What is that? It's an idol. Anything that you turn to for your satisfaction, your joy, and your comfort in living that isn't God, right? Were it to be removed from you would bring great sadness and cause you to to cry out to the Lord, as it were, is essentially an idol. And the people had made having this physical leader, this king, they made that their idol. They, what does that mean? It means they put their hope and their trust and their confidence in this earthly person in order to protect them, provide for them, and provide for them in terms of their ultimate salvation. They wanted a good earthly ruler to do all those things. There's a situation um, that happens in, in, the, uh, in the book of Mark. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there with me. This is the, this is the New Testament version, uh, if you will, of the, of the same scenario. And Mark gives it to us really plainly. Mark chapter 6. Um, beginning in verse 30, you have the scene. And the scene is the feeding of the 5,000. And so this is the scene uh, where they're, um, they're out there. And they have all of these people who, are, who have come. Really, the number ultimately would have been about uh, 20,000 people. And, um, and, the, uh, and, and the disciples are asked, where, you know, how are we going to feed them? And they don't have any answers. And so they bring to Jesus the, that little boy's lunch. Um, and they, they give him uh, the, the, five loaves, the five barley loaves, right, which is kind of the lowest class loaf you could have. And two sardines. And he, he, he takes those and he feeds them all. And he doesn't just feed them. He feeds them all and there's bounty. And the disciples are witness to this whole scene, okay? They, they pick up the basketfuls at the very end. And then we have the next scene. Verse 45 says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and they went ahead of him to Bethsaida uh, while he dismissed the crowd. So the disciples are put into the boat, and he sends them off, and they're out going across the sea. And you remember what happens next? A storm blows up. A storm blows up, and the disciples become um, terrified. Verse 28, they were straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And he was about to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. And he tells them, take courage, a, a courage, it's I, don't be afraid. He climbed into the boat. And then it says this, verse 52, they were completely amazed, what? 
for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. They had not understood about the loaves. So here they are in the middle of the lake. All of this was happening. Things are going against them on the lake. The storm was blowing up. Jesus comes out to them. They're terrified by the scene. They, they're not making the connection about who he is and what he's capable of. He had just fed 20,000 people with five barley loaves and two fish. And they didn't have the, they couldn't comprehend that it was him on the water or that he could, in fact, calm the storm. They, they couldn't make that connection. They, they were missing the connection. They saw what he had done, but they couldn't cry out to him and call out to him in the next moment. This was immediately, like they did it in the afternoon. They were out on the boat that night. And while they're out on the boat that night, they didn't have the foresight to connect the dots that Jesus could meet their immediate need. That's what we're being told in 1 Samuel chapter 12. The people could not connect the dots between who God was and what he had done for them and what they needed now. And so they cried out for a king. Let me ask, kind of, because the challenge for us is, do we, do we know this God? Do we trust this God? When storms blow, when difficulties come, are, are we able to transition in our mind to who the God of the Bible is, right? This God who took care of his people in unbelievable circumstances and provided miraculously for them in our own life situation. Let's talk about the second one. Because the next thing that he does in this farewell is Samuel directs them to fear God. In verses 13, 14, and 15, theologians talk about this. This is... This is like straightforward, boilerplate sort of covenant language. And the language here is, right, you've asked for a king, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and you serve him and you don't rebel against his commands, then, um, and if you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good, things will go well with you. If you don't obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors or your fathers. That is the straightforward covenant language. I am your God. You are my people. I've done this for you. You will do that for me. That's straightforward. We're in a relationship. I'm your God and you're my people kind of language. We don't get that very often. Most of what, most of, frankly, what I hear, what I see, and what I read is, Jesus is my best friend. And he is. He's closer than a brother. But he's God. He's God. And that means he has the call on our lives. 
he is the creator of the universe. He is the one who is able to say to us, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now live this way before me. And that's what he's saying. Samuel is saying to them, listen, God has done all of these things for you. If you follow hard after him with this king that you wanted, notice how he points the king out, right? He says, look, you've got the king you wanted. There he is. Is Saul something to look at? Yeah, he's he's all that and more, but he's just a man. And Samuel's calling him out and he's saying, look, yeah, you got your king. And if you guys... Do what you say you're going to do. Everything will be great. But if you don't, watch out. And then he essentially says this. It's a word of caution. It really is a word of caution. It's a word of warning. And, and then he says this to them. He says, um, look, I'm going to give you a picture. I'm going to show you who this God you are worshiping and standing before is. Verse 16, now then, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord is about to do before your eyes. And they asked a question, verse 17, is it not wheat harvest now? (laughs) Does that sound weird? Isn't it wheat harvest now? I'm going to call out to God to send rain and lightning and thunder. Okay, big deal. Well, here's the big deal. The big deal is that wheat harvest is about May or June in Israel, and they don't get rain and thunder and lightning in Israel. Uh, one, one author says it's, it's, uh, it's that uh, the Weather Channel people are really bored in Israel in May and June, okay, because there's no tornadoes, there's no lightning, there's no thunder. It, it, they, they have seasonal patterns, and those seasonal patterns hold true Year after year after year after year. And for there to be rain and lightning and thunder in May and June, oh, well, that would be highly unusual. And so what does Samuel say? Samuel says, look, I'm going to cry out to God. And I'm going to cry out to God for rain and lightning and thunder. And he does. And God sends it. And that for them should have been enough at that moment to understand who God is. He is that God. The God that can send in May and June rain on the wheat crop. Luke chapter 12, verse 4, Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, Do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are more value than any sparrow. Jesus is saying, there is one to fear. And it's the one who has the power after death to direct where you will spend eternity. We don't talk a lot about fear. We talk a lot about love and grace and mercy. But Samuel is directing the attention of the people to the creator God of the universe. 
And he's saying it's appropriate to have the right amount of fear for him. In Hebrews chapter 12, if you want to turn there, I know we're bouncing around a little. But this is a really instructive passage. Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews, uh, it's in uh, um, verse 18. He's, in, he's instructing them uh, about uh, not apprehending who God is or, or having a too cavalier approach to him. And he says this, he says in verse 18, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and it is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm. So the writer of Hebrews is talking about when the Israelites were at Mount Sinai. Okay, and so they're at Mount Sinai and the mountain is rocking because God has descended upon it in the pillar of cloud and fire. And so he is on the mountain and it's quaking and and God warns the people, you can't approach this mountain. If you touch this mountain, you'll die. And so he tells them, he says, you haven't come to that mountain, to Mount Sinai to a trumpet blast or a voice speaking words that those who heard the words begged that they not be spoken. So when God thundered from the mountain, the people looked at Moses and said, we would just prefer not to hear from God. Why don't you go talk with him and come back and tell us what he has to say? They were so terrified, verse 21, that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. And here's what he says. He says, you haven't come to that mountain. You haven't come to Mount Sinai. Instead, you have come, verse 22, to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covet to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And then he says, see to it that you don't refuse him who speaks. You hear the contrast? This is what the writer of Hebrews says. We would probably all take Mount Sinai, right? Yeah. We think that we we would relish that experience just to see God. And the writer of Hebrews says, be careful, because you haven't come to that mountain, that mere fire at Mount Sinai. No, you've come to the true and living God. You've come to the heavenly Mount Zion. What he's saying is, when you worship, when we gather, when we approach the throne together, it's not Mount Sinai. It's the heavenly Mount Zion. And it's bigger and badder. It's more terrifying in a way than Mount Sinai. But then he says this, and we'll close. He exhorts them and he exhorts us to cling to the grace of God. Verse 20. But don't be afraid. Now think about this. 
He's called them out. He said, look, you did a terrible thing by calling for a king. It was a great sin. You have essentially rejected God by calling for a king. But then he tells them, verse 20, don't be afraid. Yep, you've done all this evil. You did not turn away from the Lord. Or you have done all of this evil. And then he says, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away and follow after useless idols. They'll do you no good, and they can't rescue you. And then in verse 22, he really gives them the heart of it. And he says, look, God's purposes are sure. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people. Because he was pleased to make you his own. And so the first line that Samuel gives them is this note of hope. And look, y'all, all all the way through Scripture, this is the story. God thunders against his people, and then he loves them, and he shows them his grace. He calls them to repentance, and then he shows them his great covenant love. This is often very confusing for people. It's like it's like a parent. Right? It's like having your child who has really messed up and they need discipline. And so you mark out and you tell them, "This is what I require of you." And here's the discipline. And then in the very next sentence, the words, but never forget that I love you. I love you more than anything. You hear those words? You may have spoken those words. And that's essentially what's coming at them. Samuel is saying, listen, yes, you did all those terrible things. You called for a king. You ran after that. The idols of your heart have been stirred up and you wanted something that really wasn't good for you and you've forsaken God but don't forget God's purposes he loves you and his purposes are sure essentially what God says is he loved them because he loved them it doesn't make any sense but it's his love and then Samuel says this in verse 23 and don't forget I am going to keep praying for you you rascals I am not going to let you get away from the grace and the grasp of God, and I will pray for you. This is where it could have been a really funky farewell, if you know what I mean. Samuel could have said, you dirty, rotten scoundrels, you rejected me and you rejected God, and I'm not going to even pray for you anymore. And Samuel says, far be it for me to do that. I'm going to love you the way God loves you too. And then verse 24. He tells them, your path is clear. Fear God and serve Him. And then he says this, and consider how He has acted on your behalf. Don't forget the God who saved you. That's what Samuel's saying. He's saying, don't forget Don't forget that you were dead in your trespasses and sins when he called you out of darkness into light. Don't forget that when you were in the midst of running the other way, right, 
your greatest Jonah moment that you were so probably very proud of, don't forget that He loved you and He chased you. Don't forget that when you're unlovable, He loved you with an everlasting love. Have you been in, have you been in need of radical repentance in your life? Yeah. Over and over and over and over. Is He faithful to forgive? Every single time. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just. And He will forgive us of our sins. Not because we deserve it, but because He loves us. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness. Thank You for the story of Samuel's farewell, his final words to his people, people that he loved, people that he served faithfully. And what great words they are for us. What a great comfort. Father, highlight this morning for us the idols of our hearts. Highlight in our hearts the things that we are so easily prone to chase after. And we might turn away from those things. And give us, Father, a healthy, a healthy fear of who you are, how great and awesome and majestic you are. Yes, you love us. Yes, your grace and mercy are evident all around that you are God. And then, Father, in the midst of it all, let us see and know, taste and cherish your grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.